Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church, the show where we harvest the fruits of the last week, or in this case, the last couple of weeks on the Vatican Beat. We were off for a while for the holidays, but we are back. And we begin this week with by far the biggest Vatican story of the holiday period, which is the furor over fiducia. So on December 18th, the Vatican issued a document called Fiducia Supplicans, which gave a kind of cautious approval for the non-liturgical blessings of same-sex unions. It is open to kind of civil war in Catholicism. We will bring you the latest about what is being said, and we will also try to unpack the complicated question of whether this is more sizzle than steak. So we will delve into all of that. Then second, and apologies for the language, okay, but here we are. The second story this week is the analysis of orgasms. I'm sure that's a word you never thought you would hear on this show, because this is, after all, a family program. But nevertheless, revelations about a 25-year-old book written by the current head of the Vatican's Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, Argentine Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, and its graphic discussions of human sexuality have created new controversy regarding the kind of sexual morality being presented by the Vatican under Pope Francis. We will unpack what's going on with that. Third, we've got saying no to surrogacy. In his annual address to diplomats, Pope Francis calls for a global ban on surrogate motherhood. We will try to explain what the Pope's concern is and how that fits into the panorama of the positions being taken by this papacy. And then finally this week, we've got Musings on Mongolia. My wife and I spent the holiday season, that is Christmas and New Year's, in the coldest capital city on earth, that is Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. I'm going to try to argue that that was a perfect perch with which to regain some degree of perspective about what really matters in terms of the Catholic faith. All of that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church. So please, please do not go anywhere. Do not change that dial. Do not click away. We will be right back. This is our official Last Week in the Church infomercial because I come to you with a special offer for all of those would-be Catholic eggheads out there. That is, if you're the kind of person who likes sounding smart, who likes creating the impression that you know things other people don't, that certainly describes me. If that describes you, you're going to want to know about this. Now, I've already spoken about this new app, this new online resource called Magisterium AI. Basically, what it allows you to do is to type in a question like, what does it mean that the Pope is infallible? Or what does the Catholic Church teach about the environment? Or, you know, whatever. And it will give you a short, smart, easily digestible answer based on more than 5,000 official magisterial texts. But recently, these guys have created a new feature on the app. It's called the Scholarly Mode which draws not just on official texts, 
but also the best and brightest of Catholic thinkers and theologians over the centuries, from Augustine and Aquinas to more contemporary figures. And we'll also give you a very quick answer about what those folks have had to say about what the church teaches on various issues. Now, I promise you that if you try this once, you're going to wonder how in God's name you ever lived without it. It's brought to you by our friends at Longbeard. They are the digital marketing design company that provide the IT backbone for Crux. They provide the same service for a slew of other Catholic organizations and outfits. They are they're brilliant, and they are creative, and they are tremendous. And I'm kind of out of adjectives at this point, which is saying something, because I traffic in adjectives. But I am telling you, these people are the absolute level best. So check it out. This is Magisterium AI, their new scholarly mode. You're going to dig it. Magisterium.com, that is Magisterium.com. It comes with my personal guarantee. All right, everybody, happy Wednesday to you. Happy Wednesday, January 10th in the new year of 2024. I hope you all had marvelous and blessed holidays for the Christmas and the New Year's period. I know we did. I'm going to come to our experience in a little bit, but we start this week with what has undoubtedly been the dominant Vatican story of the holiday season, and that is the furor, the, the ferment, the kind of tsunami that was unleashed by the Vatican's December 18th document entitled Fiducia Supplicans, that is imploring trust, imploring faith, concerning the non-liturgical blessings of same-sex unions. In effect, the position taken by the Vatican's dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, that is the former holy office, basically the Vatican's doctrinal watchdog department, is that in settings outside of formal liturgical moments, that is non-ritual, non-liturgical settings, if a same-sex couple comes forward to request a blessing, then it is permissible to give such a blessing. Now, I'm really not sure that since Paul VI, the 1968 encyclical Omane Vitae, reiterating the Church's traditional ban on birth control, I'm not sure there has been a Vatican document that has elicited such a stunning, variety of reactions all across the world, not just from, you know, editorial pages in secular newspapers or, you know, commentary at the grassroots, but, you know, also from bishops and bishops' conferences. I mean, to sort of give you the lay of the land, at this point, you know, almost a month after the document came out, what we know is that bishops' conferences in Western Europe, at least some of them, have sort of largely welcomed this document as a confirmation of what was already sort of their pastoral practice. However, in Central and Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, and certainly much of Africa, the reaction has been far more negative 
basically saying that we are not going to administer these blessings, that they are not pastorally appropriate in our circumstances. In the United States, the reaction has been sort of cautious but noncommittal. And in much of Latin America and Asia, the reaction has been sort of, well, characterized by a kind of strategic silence, which would suggest a kind of ambivalence about it all. I mean, if you add it all up, what we've got is an x-ray of a divided church on this question. There are some places in the Catholic world, I think particularly what you might consider the first world, the developed world, that is Western Europe and pockets of North America, where this sort of thing is considered long overdue and basically welcome. There are many other places where it is considered inappropriate and inconsistent with Catholic teaching about marriage and human sexuality. So let's try to dive in and ask sort of three basic questions about this document. One question would be, why now? You know, why is, why is the Vatican declaring itself on this question now? And it is interesting because let us remember that this is not the first time that the Vatican has basically given a kind of, what, a sort of green or yellow light, at least, when it comes to blessing same-sex unions in the run-up to the Synod of Bishops on Synodality last October. There was a set of dubia, that is doubts, submitted to Pope Francis by five conservative cardinals. One of the questions on that list had to do with the blessing of same-sex unions, and Pope Francis back then, in responses that were made public by the Vatican, said that there were certain circumstances under which this might be appropriate. So. Why did the Vatican feel the need to reiterate it? Well, I mean, in part, it may be because we've got the second Synod of Bishops coming up in October 2024. It may be that the desire was to just take this question off the table. But I think probably the more proximate explanation is Germany. That is, the German church, in its very controversial synodal way, has talked about creating some kind of formal liturgical ritual blessing of same-sex unions. And I, and I think this could be analyzed as the Vatican's attempt to head that off, basically saying, yes, blessings can be given, but they can't be liturgical, they can't be ritual. And that's not just a hypothesis. Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, the head of the Vatican's Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, gave an interview on January 3rd to the German newspaper Die Dagespost, in which he basically said that this was a clear response to the German proposal, and that it's not everything the Germans wanted, but it is the Pope's effort to kind of keep peace in the church. Now, I suppose that explains the why now. You could ask as a subsidiary question, if the whole point of this exercise was to respond to a specific national local church, why did the Vatican opt to deliver a kind of universal statement? I mean, bear in mind, this is the first actual declaration from the Holy Office 
in 23 years. The last one was the document Dominus Jesus about the relationship between Christianity and the other great world religions in the year 2000, issued under then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI. You might ask, if all you wanted to do was say no to the Germans, you know, why did you need a kind of universal declaration like this? You know, that's a question that I'm not sure, well, I would say we don't have a clear answer to it. But let me get to the bottom line. I think the real question to be asked about this document is, what difference does it actually make? That is to say, is this a case of a genuine earthquake in Catholic life to which everyone is reacting? Or is it a case of a highly symbolically charged issue that on the ground really is not going to change pastoral practice in any particularly significant way? And I would argue that there is a good case to be made that it's actually the latter. That is, that this is just not the big deal that many people want to treat it as. I mean, let me try to break this down for you. Here's what I think. Yes, there is a significant LGBTQ plus community in the Catholic Church. However, many of those folks long ago have stopped going to church. Okay, so take them off the table. They're not involved. Of those who still go to church, I would suggest that the vast majority, probably a long time ago, found ecclesiastical home. That is a parish. Maybe it's a Newman Center at a Catholic university. Maybe it's a more liberal parish that kind of identifies as in the spirit of the Second Vatican Council, whatever. Most of those people have already found a home where their relationships, they feel, have already in some way been blessed or at the very least have been accepted. All right, so the population of LGBTQ plus Catholics who are presently clamoring for some kind of blessing, it's probably a fairly small pool of people. On the other side of this, I would point out that there are also LGBTQ plus Catholics who are not going to be satisfied with this decision, who think that it falls short of the full marriage rights to which they feel entitled. So again, my point is, we're talking about a very small group of people whose lives are actually going to be affected by all this. I mean, let me try to put this differently. Fiducia Supplicans, this new document from the Vatican, it doesn't actually prohibit anything and it doesn't actually require anything. What it does is that it says it is up to the pastoral judgment of individual priests and individual bishops to decide in a concrete set of circumstances, you know, apart from any kind of formal liturgical setting, whether or not administering a blessing would be appropriate. Now, if you were the kind of bishop or you're the kind of pastor who was inclined to think that if a same-sex couple wants your blessing, you should give it to them, you are probably already doing that. Now, maybe you weren't calling a press conference, maybe you weren't celebrating it, but nevertheless, you were probably already doing it. Now, if you were the kind of bishop or the kind of pastor who thinks that sort of thing is inappropriate, you were probably already saying no. 
I don't think this document changes that calculus in any particular way. To put this differently, I think often in Catholic life, an issue comes down the pike that generates an enormous amount of debate and controversy and consternation. But on the ground, it doesn't actually change much in terms of what we really do. My suspicion is that this is another case in point. And so, in places where bishops and clergy are overwhelmingly against this practice, it's not going to happen. In places where bishops and clergy are largely in favor of it, it probably will continue to happen. Whether that amounts to a dramatic change to the status quo, I would argue probably not. All right? But, obviously, we will continue to track reaction to all of this, and we will see how it plays out. All right, second issue up this week, the analysis of orgasms. And again, I apologize. I know this is, this is a G-rated family show. That's probably not the kind of vocabulary that normally you would expect to hear. But it is relevant for this reason, because the head of the Vatican de Castori that just issued this new document, Fiducia Supplicans, is an Argentine cardinal by the name Victor Manuel Fernandez. And it turned out, based upon revelations that came to light really just yesterday, that 25 years ago, Fernandez had written a book about human sexuality. It was titled Mystical Passion, in which he discussed you know, various aspects of sexual relationships between men and women. And there are those who are suggesting that this book raises questions about his judgment and his suitability to lead the Vatican's doctrinal office. Now, let me, if I may, describe a set of circumstances to you. Okay, here are the set of circumstances. A previously unknown, largely unknown, Catholic prelate gets a major Vatican gig. And after a while, it is revealed that many years before, he had written a book on human sexuality in which he discussed, you know, the details of male-female sexual interaction, including the dynamics of orgasms and penetration and so on and that all of this suddenly became a cause celeb. Now, that describes the current situation with regard to Cardinal Fernandez, but I would point out it also describes the situation with Pope John Paul II when it, be, when it was revealed that as a young Polish priest, he had written a book called The Love and Responsibility that was published in 1960, which formed the basis for what eventually became his celebrated Theology of the Body, a series of catechetical lessons he presented from 1979 to 1984, in which he described in some detail the dynamics of human sexuality. And, you know, he discussed orgasms. And in fact, Pope John Paul II argued that as much as possible, men and women should aim for simultaneous orgasms in order to sort of express the mutuality 
of the sexual act, and so on. My point is that Fernandez is hardly the first senior Catholic cleric on the basis of his experience of talking to young couples to sort of take a stab at trying to present a spirituality and a theology of human sexuality. I would also point out that the idea of human sexuality as an icon of Trinitarian love was also at the heart of Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Deus Caritatis. Now look, in comments to Crux, Fernandez said that that book, which he wrote 25 years ago when he was 36 years old, he said it no longer represents the developed form of his thought, that he is not given permission for it to be reprinted, that it's not so much that he regrets it, it's just it's not where he is at today, and probably doesn't represent the current form of his thinking. I guess what I would say here is, look, if you read that book, are there some expressions there that come off as a little awkward or a little excessively graphic or like arguably, I don't know, just embarrassing? Yes, absolutely. I think, and that's probably always the case when a celibate male cleric is trying to pronounce on human sexuality. Nevertheless, does this invalidate you know, every position that Fernandez is now taking as the prefect of the Vatican's dicastery for the doctrine of the faith? I don't know. You know, what I think is that all I can say is this, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, in a few days, I'm going to be celebrating, or at least observing, my 59th birthday. Would I want to be held accountable for everything that I wrote or said when I was 36 years old? Probably not. Should the same kind of consideration be given to Fernandez? Probably. I would say, you know, let's let the debate focus on what he is saying and doing now, you know, as opposed to a kind of excessive dissection of stuff he said a quarter century ago, which, by the way, is not markedly different from similar things that were said by other senior Catholic personalities, including St. Pope John Paul II. All right, third up this week, we have saying no to surrogacy. So, in the holiday season, the Pope traditionally gives his annual address to diplomats accredited to the Holy See. Pope Francis delivered that address this past Monday. And as expected, because normally this is a kind of 360-degree review of the geopolitical situation, and so as expected, Pope Francis touched upon the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, though without naming Hamas specifically. He touched on the ongoing war in Ukraine, and notably referred to it as a war of Russian aggression, which was more explicit than the Pope has sometimes been on this conflict. He talked about nuclear weapons and what he described as the inherent immorality of the possession of nuclear weapons. He referred to the Sudan and conflict points around the world. And 
all of that very much in keeping with the kind of standard diplomatic and geopolitical analysis that popes usually offer in these moments. But was perhaps slightly less expected was the fact that the Pope also used this occasion to come out strongly against surrogate motherhood. He described it as a despicable practice and said that he is in favor of a global ban on surrogacy and said it is essentially an immoral and unacceptable commercialization of the act of childbirth, of having a child, bringing a child into the world. Now, this is not a new note for Pope Francis, we should say. He has made these kinds of arguments before. But nevertheless, it is striking for a couple of reasons. One, of course, the broad narrative about Pope Francis is that he is a progressive, right? Yet this is a case, much like his, possession, his positions on, say, abortion or artificial reproduction, in which he actually aligns with the positions taken by cultural conservatives against these sorts of practices. And probably, you know, the other thing worthy of note is that on this issue, that is surrogate motherhood, it should be noted that many same-sex couples, the same people that, you know, were in a sense benefited by the Vatican's recent declaration on the blessing of same-sex unions, many same-sex couples who want to have children rely on surrogacy to accomplish that. And so for the Pope to come out against it in such a dramatic form shortly after the furor over fiducia supplicans is also, in its own way, kind of striking. Now, the way the Pope packaged his concern was that he connected this to his long-standing critique of gender ideology, that is, this kind of evisceration of natural biological differences between men and women, and basically argued that this is a case of ideological colonization, that is, of the kind of affluent, developed West trying to shove its own moral code down the throat of the rest of the world. Now, you know, you can make of that what you will, but I mean, clearly what it suggests is that this is a pope who is not content to be pigeonholed in either the categories of the ideological left or the ideological right as the Western affluent, developed world understands them. On some issues, migrants, climate, protection of the poor, even when it comes to the kind of acceptance of same-sex relationships. This pope clearly embraces positions that most of us in the West would consider to be progressive. But on many other fronts, including surrogacy, including gender theory and so on, this pope embraces positions that most of us would recognize as conservative. In other words, you know, I think we have to get past this mania to be able to label Francis as either consistently liberal or consistently conservative by the taxonomy of Western culture and instead understand he is his own original figure.
doesn't make him right, but it does make him interesting. All right, finally this week, before we sign off, I want to say just a brief word about where my wife Elise and I spent our holidays. So instead of being in Rome, because normally for the last 20 some years, I've had to be in Rome to sort of broadcast the Pope's holiday activities, but this year I was freed of those obligations. And so we decided that we were going to return to where Elise had been in late August and early September, that is Mongolia, for the Pope's visit to kind of the ends of the earth, right? The ultimate pilgrimage to the peripheries, right? The Pope went to a country, the most sparsely populated country on earth, a nation of 3.3 million people spread across a landmass that is larger than England, France, and Germany combined, sandwiched between two superpower neighbors, that is China and Russia, where the entire Catholic community is less than 1,500 people. We're talking about 1,450 people. I mean, you could fit the entire Catholic population in a sizzler, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I mean, that's the kind of place we're talking about. And I have to say that spending the holidays there was an absolute joy because it brought home two basic points. One, religion, like politics, ultimately is local. All of the stuff we have been talking about on this show, you know, whether the church does or does not, bless same-sex unions, and what book the head of the Holy Office just wrote, and what the Pope said or didn't say about surrogacy, that really has nothing to do with the decisions that ordinary people make about whether they believe in God or whether they pray or whether they go to church. We watched three new members being baptized into the church in Mongolia, and I can promise you these big-picture issues meant nothing to them. It was about their individual journeys of faith that brought them to this moment. Now, another great moment came when we were at the Sunday Mass on New Year's Eve, and there was a person in the communion line who accidentally dropped their host. Cardinal Giorgio Marengo, the Italian cardinal who leads the church in Mongolia, he fell to his knees and he immediately began picking up the remnants of this host. For the next 10 minutes, he and a nun and other people who were involved in the church there gave a lesson about Catholic reverence for the Eucharist without using a single word that was nevertheless the most powerful thing I have seen in a long time. And it makes the point that in a missionary church, you're not focused on these secondary debates, you were focused on the essentials. The church in Mongolia, thank you. Thank you for a magnificent re-education in what truly matters. By the way, I am rocking Mongolian cashmere today. Hope you dig it. I think it's the coolest thing ever. That is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. We will be back here. Same bat week, same bat channel. Do not turn away. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you all again very soon.